0: How Education Can Be Improved to Disrupt the Status Quo of Healthcare Education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. We are here live from the APTA's Next Conference in Orlando. I am joined by, of course, Stephanie Wyrock, fellow co host. Anyway, today we have the distinct pleasure of having Rick Dagle on the show today joining us. So, um, for those of you who don't know, Rick actually does a lot of stuff, but the big thing we're going to be talking about today is regarding kind of his continuing Asian company. So, Rick, welcome to everything today. It. And do you mind giving our listeners a little bit of background into who you are and kind of how? how
1: you really started this process of developing company. Yeah, I mean, man, I'm excited to be on here talking with you guys today. I've been, been listening to what you guys have been putting out for a while now and just love the content, so it's, it's an honor for me to be here with you guys. Um, I've been a physical therapist for 14, 15 years now, and I've been teaching continuing it for... Probably about eight nine years, and I started Medical Minds about five years ago because I was getting frustrated you know, teaching for other organizations and and not necessarily being able to have kind of the free reign of doing things the way that I wanted to do things. So started Medical Minds with the idea of trying to provide high quality education at an affordable price for people, and that's where it all that's where it all started and it's just continually expanded and, and grown since that point um, we've got about 30 instructors that travel nationwide and, and teach for us um, I'm still traveling and teaching uh, not as much as I used to which is kind of nice um, kind of lived in airports for a long time so it's, it's nice to take a break from that um, but really we're just trying to provide good quality education that's fun for people bring on instructors that are engaging and can keep a room happy and excited for a day-long seminar or two-day long seminar, and then be able to take it back to the clinic and use it the next day. Right. That's so the biggest thing for us. Right. So kind of going into that, like you mentioned it kind of what that is, what are some of the terms of
0: education? Like what kind of branches and what kind of things specifically, like ortho, neuro, and kind of what's the platform specifically? And so just for someone who's going to get some context.
1: Yeah. The majority of our courses are ortho-based courses. Um, we have a few instructors who teach some geriatric-based content. Um, we have a couple uh, really awesome pediatric OTs that have developed some courses for us and whatnot. The majority, though, of what we do really is from an orthopedic standpoint, um, but we're really trying to diversify as much as possible because it's not only about orthopedics and it's not just about you know the geriatric side of things or the pediatric side of things, it's really trying to diversify as much as possible, but those are the, the three kind of big avenues that we go.
2: So one of the big conversations, Rick, that have been happening on social media as well as within the educational realm. Is making sure that continuing education courses have been vetted and that they are high quality. How does your company ensure that these courses that you're offering uh, are very high quality um, CE content for the physical therapist?
1: That's a great question. And you know, first and foremost, as Brandon and I were talking about beforehand, you know, looking at state by state requirements of you know state A approving a course versus state B approving a course and. It can be a little bit frustrating sometimes because every state is different and the requirements are different. And some states do a better job, I think, at, at vetting the course, you know, first and foremost. But what we do, myself as the clinician in the business, I work with all of the instructors myself to make sure beforehand they know what the expectations are from an evidence-based standpoint. From a um, quality standpoint. So we, the instructor and I work together, and we just make sure that they're not just trying to put out anything. They have some guidelines of these are the topics that we want, and then I work hand-in-hand with the instructor to make sure that, yeah, it is appropriate, it's relevant, and
0: there's something to back it up. Yeah, and kind of going into that, that we know, of course, that there can be Instances where maybe some companies are not putting out maybe very high quality continuing education So it's really trying to set some sort of standard really that should be in place You said it kind of very state-by-state. Yeah, um, I'm really curious just from your perspective You know from going through starting up your own What do you think there are some ways that we can really help to start really address that problem? from Kind of an overall like a national approach rather than like a state-by-state state approach I think.
1: Yeah, and I think you know, the FSBPT with the creation of ProCert I, I think has been a really good start to it. The, the problem is only a handful of states will, will accept a, a ProCert uh, approval. But I think if there would be a way that we can continue to have those discussions of how do you make a central organization for our profession that would approve a course in Maine or a course in California, um, Hey, it would make our lives a whole lot easier because you just go through one aspect of doing it versus having to do it fifty times. Um, but, but I think that's that's where we need to go. I, you know, I, and I look at you know occupational therapy. You know, the American Occupational Therapy Association, they are the main approval body for OTs. So we are an approved provider through the AOTA. We have to submit the courses individually through them, but we don't have to go state by state. So. I'll be honest. It makes things a little bit easier for us because we can be much, much more targeted and strategic with what we're doing versus having to provide this for state A or this for state B. So I think what what the AOTA has done, I, I think, is a model that I'd like to see us take you know, take up.
2: Yeah, so you have been talking about that it varies state to state. What's the process in getting a continuing education course approved wow. through a state? I know you said it varies. So, um, what type of research goes and in, goes into it, and how do you know if you've
1: really checked all the boxes? And the answer to that question is, is kind of it depends. Um, the famous um, PT a famous, school answer. Yes, the famous PT school answer of it depends. Um, so I'll use a couple examples, like. You know, New Jersey is is one good one because they at least require you to have five peer reviewed references from the last five years. I'd love it if it was more, but that at least gives a little bit of a guideline. Most states, I don't know how much they actually look into your reference list and, and look into everything, but that's at least one state that I've seen. If you don't have enough up to date research, they send it back. To you. Then you've got to make sure you're, you're making a change, but that's a requirement we have all of our instructors do anyway. We've got to have up-to-date research, <clears throat> but having you know proper objectives and having a proper syllabus, just like any you know college course, having a proper syllabus with objectives and outlines and a course description that does a good job of explaining it, you know, when you check off all those boxes. You've got enough information that you can, read and along with a speaker bio and their CD, you know most of the states can, can kind of look at that and say, okay, this this course has a foundation to it, and this person teaching it has the background and is appropriate to teach it.
2: So when you're submitting for these courses, are you, is it almost like submitting for a presentation? Are you list out the course objectives? You list out the summary of the, the course and then provide your references or do you have to present the whole entire presentation
1: at that time? No, it's just you're, you're looking at your syllabus. Your syllabus, a course brochure, so title, objectives, highlights, your, your course outline, broken out into times. You know, most states like to see the outline, not just a very vague outline. They want to see a nice detailed outline. Um, but no, you don't, you don't have to submit the entire presentation.
2: I want to go a little bit deeper into the reference aspect of it. You said that New Jersey has set the standard where you need to have at least five peer-reviewed references over the last five years. Ideally, what are your thoughts on what should actually be recommended? Seems to me that that doesn't seem like enough, especially since you're trying to, obviously, maybe learn a new content area or, or improve the content area that you currently are studying. What are your thoughts on that? And if you could create a standardized system, um, what would your standards be?
1: Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, and, and I think, kind of going off on of your first question, I, I agree, five is not enough. But it's better than saying, no, we don't care what your reference list is. So I, I do I do think that the five is at least a good starting point. And, and I don't know if there's... A specific minimum number, because you could have five really, really good, high-quality studies, or you could have 15 horrible studies. So I, th- I think there needs to be a better way of addressing, and as we were talking beforehand, addressing the quality of the research. Organizations that, you know, states that approve our courses, I have no idea how in depth they look into the reference list. I don't know if. <coughs> look at each and they appraise it and and they decide what the quality level is or not but I think they should. Um, I just don't know if that's something that they necessarily have time to do or or whatnot because you're getting tons and tons of course submissions probably every week in in each state. so it's a lot for them to sift through. Um, I, I think the ideal world would be going back to having one central organization that really looks into your entire company and your entire foundation and like the AOTA, they look at our policies and procedures. They look at how we utilize uh, our surveys after post course. So I think if there were ways to to do that, that would be something I'd like to
2: see. I think it's interesting that you mention assessing the quality of the evidence because that's something that I think um, physical therapists are getting better at doing, but definitely are not quite experts at yet and I, I really appreciate that comment because I think as professionals we do need to be and they, they talked a lot about this in today's McMillan um, lecture which is the big lecture that happens at EPTA next is they talk about the importance of as a clinician being able to assess the quality of the evidence and making sure that the study that you are reading actually is something that um, you're able to critically think about and you're not just saying oh I'm doing, I do this in practice, oh look, I found a study to do it. So I, I really do appreciate that con- that comment, and I think it fits in well with what's going on here at the next Conference.
0: Yeah, so let's build off that just a little bit, because Rick, you and I were talking beforehand about kind of what are some of the reasons or barriers perhaps that, in terms of like clinician development, mm-hmm. obviously there's a lot of factors including cost, location. What are your What are some of your ideas that you can think of, other than what we've talked about already, that can really start to... Yeah maybe limits the barriers in terms of why a clinician might choose an easier to access or cheaper or closer course to really
1: get that really true quality course that perhaps originally might have been a real struggle to do. Yeah, no, and I think there's a lot of barriers because cost, for one. And I've seen over the last five to seven years, more and more facilities are not reimbursing for continuing education. And so now when you have to take that extra cost on yourself, you've got to think about, okay, it cost me X dollars for this course, but it's now five hours, six hours away, so now I've got to pay for a hotel, and I've got gas money, and it's gonna be food on the road. So just looking at the cost of the course alone isn't enough, because that's a huge barrier. So what we try to do is provide courses in big, metro markets but also provide courses in smaller rural areas um, we've got we've got a course later this year down in Corpus Christi Texas which is you know way down at the bottom of the state where yeah we could send a course maybe to Houston Dallas or to Austin to have a bigger market a bigger pool but we're trying to provide the education in smaller underserved markets so people don't necessarily have to travel as much um, I think that's a that's a huge barrier and I think clinicians need to just like we need to be better about critically appraising the research, we need to be better about appraising the course content before we go. You know, just because you get a brochure in the mail and the title of the course is nice and big and bold and it looks all sexy doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good. So, you know, when I get a course brochure in the mail and I'm going to take something, I'm looking at the, who's the speaker, I'm, I'm looking at the course description is it well written? Or is it just a bunch of stuff pieced together? And then I'm, I'm really taking a look at the outline and, and trying to say, how is this going to benefit me with my practice? And how am I gonna be able to use this immediately when I when I leave when I leave the course? So I think we need to be better about appraising research but also appraising the brochures we get in the mail every single day. Yeah, I think that's really it's really good point there. And you know, perhaps they if you ever listened now as a clinician who perhaps is like,
0: well what are some of these good institutions or clinical education units or companies that we should look into? So from your experience, from your from your situation, what are some really progressive and innovative and truly companies that really set this standard that perhaps you
1: don't think most PTs are aware of? Wow, that's, that's a really good question. Obviously, I think Medical Minds in Motion is one. Um, <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. Um, I think uh, ICE seminars Mm -hmm. is probably the one that stands out to me the most with just the the really high level of of quality content. Um, But I think more so it's it's the companies that try to not do too many spin-offs off of one course that was really good i think you know staying in your lane and being really good being great at something versus being okay at too many things so i think ice is the big one that stands out to me obviously medbridge um, you know the amount of education you can get off of medbridge for you know what you're paying is just phenomenal and, and they bring in great speakers and people who are really really good at what they do, experts in the field that maybe we wouldn't necessarily have a chance to go see at a live seminar. So
0: I think those are the, those are the two big ones for me. Yeah, and um, to kind of add on to that, one thing that at least, because I'm, I'm also very familiar with ICE as well, and I, I, I agree, I really respect and like what they do. One thing that I also find that's unique about them is that sense of community. Because <laughs> it's not just, it's like, it's not you just go to a course and you're done. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: No, there's a community of involvement awesome. yes. that really works on integrating some of that stuff because they even say we realize you're not going to be able to do it all perfectly. You have enough to get started. We're gonna be a community and serve as a resource for when that next step personally develops. I think that's huge that's been huge for me.
1: You can only get so much in a one day, two day, three day course so having you know the ability to continue discussions and continue learning even after the fact I think is critical.
2: I also think that you know there's a few private practices in in the PT world that are doing some great stuff with continuing education. I know Entropy Physi- Physiotherapy up in Chicago, it's San- Sandy Hilton and um, uh, Sarah Haig are doing some really great stuff with the continuing education that they offer. Um, I've taken a lot of continuing education through MedBridge as well, and I totally agree that MedBridge is where it's at, especially if you don't really have the resources to travel. Mm-hmm. And then I've really found a lot of value in um, The mckinsey institute that's another continuing education course that i have they also have like a community feel they have linkedin groups facebook groups and you can go in and ask clinicians anything and they even have a mentorship group where you can be paired up with a mentor as you're continuing to learn these things
0: yeah i think that's absolutely true and i think another thing that's interesting is that how you know when i look at medbridge i like to look at medbridge as more so Not as much for skill based learning, but more so for theory and knowledge learning. You know, and I think that's one of its really big strongest points because it does have a really good job of talking about the theory, the research, and that's very, very good. But if I want to do, like, say, a skill specifically, I'm probably not going to go to MedBridge as my first go for that. You know, because there's a difference between what you're trying to do. So this is going back to what Rick was saying earlier, depending on self assessing where you're strong at, where you're weak at, looking for a credible option. And then depending if that's more of a skill base or if that's more I need theory or I need integration, whatever that might be, you can choose whether an online or a live
1: seminar, depending on what's yeah. best for you. And, and it's it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that you know theory versus skill. One thing that we started doing with our instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization certification program, when I take a course, I'm all over the place and my brain thinks like eight different things at the same time. Um, When I go to a course, I need to be engaged right away. Otherwise, I lose interest really, really fast. So what we've done with our IASTM cert is the first three hours are all done online pre-course. It's the theory, the history, the philosophy, the stuff that people don't really want to go sit in a class and hear the instructor just yap at them for the first three hours. So they get to hear me yap at them on their own leisure on the computer before they come take the class. And then they show up and we do maybe 20 minutes of review and it's right into labs it's demo practice demo practice right into the skill right into the hands-on side of things immediately and and that's worked really well because i don't think a manual therapy skill is something you should necessarily be learning online not to be physically there doing and working with the you know the instructor team to make sure you're you're safe for one and and appropriate so we've kind of combined the idea of let's get the I don't want to call it boring because it's important, but let's get that discussion stuff. The more dense. The more yeah. dense stuff. That's a nice. More way.
2: dense material. Yeah. yeah. That's
1: nicer than saying boring. <laughs> that's but, true. So we did that beforehand and then get right into the skill work. So we've, we've made that hybrid model. So one thing especially that I've
0: kind of liked, I've, I'm clearly a big fan of ice oh. if you haven't picked that up by now, but what I really like about what they've decided, how they've done it is they really integrate. So every, each aspect of the punishment they go through subjective. They go through research that's in there They go through the objective testing. They go through your thought process. They go through the technique, and then they go through following up to do. Like I just love how they hit every avenue of it. So I'm not just, oh, I just have a technique. I don't know how to. I don't know how or when to use it. Like I love how they spell out every avenue that could potentially be involved with whatever I'm learning. So I think that, at least to me, that's been something that's hugely helpful.
2: You know, you you obviously have a lot of knowledge on how to produce a great continuing education course. I'm interested to know what kind of books
1: you read. Uh, Therapy-related books nope. or not? Nope,
2: nope. I want to um, know what type of uh, more pleasure reading you like to engage in.
1: Uh, I'm a sports nut. Um, I will read any book on golf I can get my hands on <laughs> from, you know, just Stupid stories from golfers to swing mechanics and technique because I just, I, I love it. Um, that's one thing. I'm also, I, I grew up on a horse farm. So uh, I, anything I can, you know, read regarding, you know, horses, animals, whatnot, I, that's kind of where most of my leisure reading really is.
2: When I was a child, I read The Pony Pals. Nice. Speaking of horse books.
0: I have not read those books. Okay. I clearly couldn't tell by my reactions there. Um, so, Rick, I, I, I've learned quite a bit from even just talking with you and then just doing this interview today. And, you know, we usually like to wrap each episode by kind of giving this last ultimate question because we're just really curious to hear what everyone's thoughts are. And the question is if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, DPT or other healthcare provider related, which aspect would you change and
1: how would you change it? Wow. So, that's a really good question. Um, I could probably come up with 50, um, but I'm going to kind of go a little bit of a different direction. So, I have been a program director for a PTA program, and I've also been an ACCE. Um, I'm very passionate about the PTO education role. And I look back at my time as a program director and ACC, and my biggest frustration was, how do I get all of this content that they need to learn in such a condensed, limited amount of time? So I would start by trying to expand the amount of education that, that the PTA receives. And whether that means, I know there's a lot of discussion about you know, going from an associate's degree to a, a you know bachelor's degree whether that's the right answer or not that's not my decision to make but trying to expand the education for Ptas I think would be something I'd I'd like to see a, a major change happen with we just don't have enough time I think I think time is a big barrier because when, when you look at all of the evaluative criteria through CAPTI that you need and then look at the amount of clinical hours that you need and the amount of class hours. And, and unfortunately, you're limited by each state board of education of how many credit hours a student can take for an associate's degree, and part of that has to be in general ed. So I, I, I think that's the biggest barrier because you have to give more of an overview of a lot of things versus an in-depth analysis of, Let's I'll take manual therapy as an example, I mean, the amount of time that you have to go through manual therapy education in a, in most PTA programs is a sliver of what I think anyone would need. So. Or, even,
2: or even manual muscle
0: testing.
1: Exactly.
2: So I think that one of the things that needs to be done in PTA programs is we just need to have physical therapists really or physical therapist assistants, depending on who's mentoring the the student. They really need to make sure that they are engaging the student and mentoring them well. I have seen, we've had PTA students come through our clinic, and their biggest comment is, yeah, I was just basically a workhorse, I didn't get a lot of great mentorship, and that's one thing that they loved about coming to our facility is, that they felt like they got really great mentorship. And that's something that I think as physical therapists we don't necessarily do as well as maybe we do with PT students. I think that that would be maybe one consideration for that idea, building on your idea.
1: I can't argue with that one. I mean, I, and I've seen it, PT and PTA students come back from certain rotations saying, I didn't do anything. They just made me, I was a number. So I, I think it's a, a huge thing. I think it's getting better, but having set mentorship, I think, would be a great, great way to go about it. Anyone who puts their mind to it mm-hmm. and looks for opportunity, it's there. Mm-hmm. It, it's there. You just got to put. You know, maybe someone might have to jump through some more hurdles and and spend some more time. You know, getting to where they want to get. But I think there's opportunity there for everyone, whether you're a PT or a PTA. Um, it's all about deciding what you want and figuring out what steps do I need to take to hit that level, and then surround yourself with good people. So I think opportunities are there. I think it's probably a bit harder for a for a PTA just from the the level of education, but I think there are plenty of opportunities still.
2: I would agree with that. You know, APTA has gotten way more instrumental in trying to push this. They have a credentialing course now that PTAs can go through for different sections to become a credentialed PTA in, say, women's health. Um, Also, I think that it's really important that as a PTA student, when you become employed, that you find a great PT or PTA mentor who will spend the time with you to continue to improve your clinical skills because you're right, the program is so short that you just don't have time to really make, to really hone in on on becoming that expert. And so I would advise PTA students, so early career PTAs listening, to really make sure that you're finding a great clinician to help mentor you because they're gonna be the ones that are going to ensure that you will become an amazing clinician and push you. So I agree, the opportunities are probably harder to come by, but they are there, and it just takes time to look for those opportunities.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Well, Rick, again thanks so much for coming on today it's been a blast chatting with all with everyone here and just learning i love like every episode i learn something new where can people find you online or on social media if they want to reach out or kind of find out more
1: yeah so uh, people can find me on facebook friend request me i'll accept it i I have no qualms about that um uh, is our website also have our facebook page um my instagram handle is caffeinated crossfit (laughs) physio um My, my, wife, my wife, Cassie, came up, with, came up with that one, so i got to give her all the credit for that. Um, but uh, my email is rick at medicalmindsinmotion.com. Um, people can get a hold of me any of those ways. Very good. We'll put, post all those links in the show notes for you guys if you
0: guys are interested to take a look. But, Rick, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Access to health care is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to health care. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET, in all caps, when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content.
1: If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HETpodcast, on Instagram, H-E-T podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com.
0: And for those of you following along in the syllabus... Extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review.
1: Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.